Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. So glad that you could join us. I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing introduction, as always. Seek out him and his wife, Deb, on the Internet. They are Native storytellers, and they have a talent and a gift that is truly amazing. So Mark has an amazing show tonight, and he has two of my most favorite people in the world on. So I feel that you're going to find this as enlightening and exciting as I am. So, Mark, the show is all yours. How are you, Barbara? Doing well. Good. Okay. Uh, yeah. Last weekend there was the you know biannual cartoons all over Facebook about the druids complaining about moving the stones at Stonehenge for the um, moving the clocks forward an hour um, you know I, I'd given Maria the wrong time because I, you know, I didn't realize the uh, British had or th- they'll be uh, moving their clocks uh, ahead one hour in a couple uh, weeks so uh, you know finally Got everyone on the same page. I, you know, I just thought everyone in the northern hemisphere uh, did it all at the same time. But then again, the Brits drive on the wrong side of the road and use <laughs> Celsius. <laughs> but but anyway. I'm mean, <laughs> But but uh, yeah, we have everyone here together for uh, this show. We o- overcame that obstacle. But uh, yeah, we have the ultimate megalithic show today. Uh, both of our guests are also TV stars um, you know, Nightlight uh, re- resident uh, megalithic experts are joining us this afternoon. Uh, Maria Wheatley is an expert dowser and author of numerous books on earth energies uh Celestial alignments at Avebury and Stonehenge, the 
elongated skulls of Stonehenge. And she's a tour guide uh, to many renowned destinations in Europe, the Mediterranean, and Egypt, founder of the Esoteric College. And her website is theaveberryexperience.co.uk. And Dennis Stone was featured on the inaugural season of America Unearthed. He's the owner of America Stonehenge. Uh, and he, he's planning on releasing his book on America Stonehenge soon. And Dennis's website is StonehengeUSA.com. Hi, Maria and Dennis. How are you? Hi, Mark. I'm very well. Thank you for having me on the show Good. with Dennis. Been looking forward to it. Uh, do we still have Dennis? Oh, may have dropped off. Okay, so he's there. Okay, but um, let's start with an unsuspecting location for our look at Hello, Mark. Similarities. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, we hear. Okay. Hear you Thought now. I lost you. Sorry. Um, yeah, I can hear you good. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And uh, yeah, we <clears> could <throat> maybe start with uh, looking at some of the uh, megalithic similarities on both sides of the Atlantic by um, st- starting <clears throat> with. Uh, Malta. <clears throat> yes, I mean, Malta is a, is a wonderful island, Mark. It is full, as you know, of many megalithic, marvelous temples. Yeah, and, and uh, you and Dennis have been there. Uh, Barbara and I haven't. Um, you know, probably some of the uh, listeners haven't been there. So, so um it, it seems like there are some similarities incorporated in the engineering of the structures on Malta and at Dennis's place. You know, may, uh, maybe some other uh, archaeological sites in uh, America. Uh, you, you know, if. It, you know, we say we were to go on one of your tours to Malta. Uh, you know, what are some things we would see at the Hypergeum, for example? Well, the Hypergeum was found completely by accident when there was boring for well in around 1902. And it was excavated by Professor uh, Zamet, and many, many others have contributed since. And they found a staggering amount of bodies, which we'll discuss in a moment. But what you would experience at the Hypergeum, visualize this. You're in the earth, you're beneath the ground, and you're looking at the most beautifully carved limestone bedrock around you that contains chamber after chamber after chamber, going down uh, 25 or so feet, way down to the the first level. And these chambers have been engineered. One chamber, for example, very famous called the Oracle Chamber, is where if you spoke in it, it would resonate the same sound around the entire hypergeum. 
And it was a staggering amount of people in there. In 1906, there was 33,000 people estimated to have been put inside the, the hypogeum. And like I've pointed out, there is such a similarity between the hypogeum, this underground temple space, to what the Iron Age peoples were doing here in the British Isles by building fogus. And fogus are underground subterranean chamber spaces where you're in complete darkness and you're literally within uh, the womb of the earth. And throughout the hypogeum were found axe-shaped pendants. That was very popular. Female figurines of, uh, of the goddess and, and fish-shaped uh, pendants as well as a lot of hold stones. And hold stones in the British Isles are sacred. They mean healing. They mean they're going to protect you from negative forces, for example. So I see the hypogeum as being very close to an Iron Age monument that's around about 750 BC to 43 AD over here. But the hypogeum goes back to the fourth millennium BC. Wow. Okay, and and Dennis, when you were there, what what were you seeing that could indicate that there were uh, these type of concepts may have been uh, brought? Across the ocean to America's shores. <clears throat> well, we were there in 1997, and, and if I recall, we were there for about a week. And the hypogeum was closed at that time, I believe. So we only saw the structures on top of the surface, which were very mag- magnificent, like Maria was talking about. We were pretty astounded by that. It's still one of my wife's favorite trips. We, you know, we took my son there and everything. But back in the 1950s, at this our site, there was a gentleman from Connecticut. His name was Frank Glenn. He was a president of the Connecticut Archaeological Society. <clears throat> and uh, he worked on the site uh, during the 1950s and up to the time he died in 1968. And he was involved with the very first radiocarbon dating taken at our site. And he saw something like 23 similarities between our site and um, the structures in Malta, <clears throat> uh, including things like what we call... Um, we had these cutouts in the bedrock, and when I was in Malta, I saw these. And they're like small <clears throat> cutouts, and they have like little runnels on them where if you put a fluid into them, the fluid would actually run off the rock. And we have about a half a dozen of these at our site. And um, according to some people, they're called libation bowls, and you'd put a fluid in there. And when I talked to one of the guides at Malta, I said, what would be the function of this? Why would they create this? They actually carved them right in solid bedrock. And he said they were used for fertility purposes, and they would put a fluid in there, and then the fluid would go into the ground, and it was supposed to give them uh, good luck for fertility for, you know, to have kids, for crops, for animals to reproduce, that kind of thing. And I said, we have some very, very similar ones at our site, and one of them is kind of shaped like a wine bottle, one's shaped like an apple, another one's shaped like actually like a baby chicken, if you will, and they all have these little carvings of a runnel so the fluid would run off. And that was one of the 23 things that Frank Lynn saw. Also, a lot of our structures have big quarried slabs of stone stood on their end that are part of the chambers called orthostats. And so that could be just a coincidence, you know, but that they are very, very similar to what I saw in Malta. 
Uh, we have the oracle chamber, as Maria was talking about, an oracle chamber. Ours is a little different. We actually have a tube that goes through, and it comes out underneath a very large slab of stone called the sacrificial table. It's a six-foot tube. It's about one foot square. And inside the oracle chamber, there's actually part of the bedrock was left as a step, and they actually quarried around it. And somebody about five, five and a half feet tall could stand on that step, speak through the speaking tube, and people outside on a ramp area looking down at the table would hear a voice coming out, sounding like the table was talking to you, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, if you would. But I also saw holes in the wall in some of the big orthostats at Malta, and I, again, asked one of the guides, I said, what are those? And he goes, those are oracle tubes, which these are not in the hypergeme. These are above, you know, ground. And I have pictures in our theater of Malta, and you can see some of these holes. And he said, yeah, that's where a voice would be spoken through, according to him. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but they were used as oracle, where a person would speak and hear a voice. And, again, there's probably about another 20 different features, including courtyard, a plaza area, uh, and some of the structures Frank, reminded Frank Glenn of what he saw in Malta. And, again, what we saw, too, there were some resemblances to that. So, um, but it's true of other megalithic sites across Europe, particularly in Spain and Portugal, where there's very, very close similarities. Okay, and, and <clears throat> you know, Maria, uh, you know, you've also also been uh, taking the uh, tourists to uh, Scorba and you know, can can you explain what that structure is, and you know, we can also get into uh, uh, the the elongated skulls that that have also been found uh, sure. on on Malta too, uh, and and that's uh, a, a really fascinating subject. So mm. uh, maybe we can start with Scorba and. These, the, the temples of Malta were really a goddess culture and a goddess religion. In fact, in Maltese, there is no word for father. And when we look at uh, the temple spaces, for, for example, such as uh, Tajin, as you entered that temple space, which is very similar to, uh, to Scorba, for example, you would have been encountering a massive two meters that's six feet, Mark, uh, okay. massive goddess figure <laughs> who towered above you. So, you know, you're looking at going into these ancient sites to meet the goddess. And I don't think it's just about fertility. I think it's about that aspect of yourself within as well as an outer expression. Because when you're in the hypergeum, you're not in the outside world. You're within yourself and within. Mm -hmm. And some of the water mixes with the stone, if you go to Stonehenge, they're not considered for fertility, for example. They're considered a cure. And that was written in the, the 12th century. But the other temples around Malta, again, they focus on a goddess uh, culture. They have a lot of underground water aquifers beneath them, for example, that generates negative ions, which make us feel good. And our tests have shown that puts you into a 7 to 10 hertz frequency of your mind, which is the alpha mode. So these are conscious changing places. They're places where you enter, the, uh, you go from the ordinary to the extraordinary to experience different aspects of yourself and the temple. And I think the earth energies of which they're sighted above encourage that aspect uh, of us. 
also, when we look at, for example, entering uh, Tajim, it's their most highly decorated site. It has carvings of spirals with leaves coming off, which uh, symbolize the life force. Then it has these beautiful rows of goats and pigs and rams, which a very famous archaeologist called Maria Gimbutas says represents the zodiacal procession, but more than that. What Gimbutas hmm. tells us accurately is these represented the inner womb of the goddess. And when you look at their shapes, they, they are literally like that giant goddess put on the ground. They're called asps, these inner chambers within the temple spaces, representing the, the great goddess. Well, it, you know, we heard s- similar <clears throat> in, information last uh, week about the te- tectonic plates and uh, how the, the quartz can affect, uh, you know, your uh, mind and give you certain uh, feelings of empowerment. Uh, it, it, and, you know, Make you feel like you, know, you had like a religious type of experience. It's really interesting. Yeah. Where we're finding that the ancients knew of the these certain energies on both sides of the Atlantic, and and you know, when uh oh there there's a megalithic phone call um <laughs> there there were um when well, you know, last week when you know we you know we were covering some of that information um yeah, there we were discuss some of the um, you know fault lines that that run through Dennis's uh, property. Uh, you know, there, there's the uh, Clinton Newberry fault line, and many of the books that examine uh, Stonehenge include the, the Saint Michael. Uh, line that runs, you know, it comes up what, out of the uh, ocean in Cornwall and Avebury's on that, not Stonehenge. Oh, oh uh, okay, a- Avebury, and, and it just kind of cuts across southern England. You know, we have this same, um, <laughs> like concepts of uh, being. Found on both sides of the Atlantic, where uh, the, the ancient people uh, were aware of the direction of the, you know, where the fault line was going. They built their uh, monuments on, on top of it. Uh, since both of you have experience with de- dealing with um, the yeah, you know, these ley lines, you know, grids, you know, whatever we want to call them. Uh, can can you explain what is going on with that scenario? 
It was Paul McCartney, a geologist, that discovered that not necessarily ancient sites are sited on them. They can be, but they're normally in the British Isles and Northwest Europe within uh, 1.5 miles of them. And uh, I'll go into it in a moment what that uh, is a particular design canon to enliven the megaliths that uh, has been uh, discovered. But to go back to uh, the St. Michael Lay, is the, the, the Lay is a kind of anchor for the currents of Earth energy that entwine it. So we, we envision a ley line, but having living Earth currents entwining that. And that's what the ancients were looking for, more importantly than the ley, was the, the living Earth currents. And they would cite every single monument on the current. Not every single monument in a ceremonial landscape is cited on a ley. It can't be, because it goes at a, a straight angle. So I see you know, the, the difference between just lays and grids. We, we see the earth energies entwining them to be the most important. But going back to, to the fault line, you see what has been discovered, and I have experienced firsthand, is that when you place a, a megalith, and especially if it's of hard stone like granite or sarsen stone, which is the st some of the stones of Stonehenge uh, are sarsen. Some of them are blue stones from Wales, but the sarsen stones are particularly hard, and so are the blue stones. They're kind of second to granite uh, in a way. Now, you place that near a fault line or on the fault line, and when a celestial object uh, goes over the horizon line, meaning at sunrise or sunset or moonrise or sunset, you get what's called sheer force. And that's imagined that like a wave of energy goes through the ground, okay, caused mm -hmm. by that celestial movement. And it conveys a megalith in a piezoelectrical uh, energy, which you can feel as a tingle on a particular point of the stone. It's quite magical. And it really does charge up the stone to have a particular amount of energy. So I think that's one of the reasons why they were placed on a fault line. Okay, and Dennis, what are you noticing at America's Stonehenge? Uh, it, it seems almost very similar to what Maria has been describing. Right, yeah, we do have the uh, fault line, as you mentioned, the Clinton Newberry fault line, and the uh, the hill is the site is about one acre and surrounded by almost 110 acres of walls. But the site itself is bisected by the east-west direction of the fault line, which goes out to Cape Ann about uh, 20 miles by the seashore. And then uh, it goes down into uh, that fault line, actually ends up in Connecticut, right down near North Stonington, Connecticut, which is a place with about 8,000 different uh, stone features that are quite similar to our site. And it goes right into North Stonington, and it continues into a couple of these other sites, according to one of the researchers that lives down there in North Stonington. He gave me all this information. We were just talking about it today. Uh, we're doing some LIDAR work up here, and a gentleman is from Connecticut, and he's very familiar with the gentleman. But our site is split right in the middle, and the site is built right over the fault line. Um, and um, it runs out, and I just discovered this, to the west, the opposite direction, out at the glacial cliff shelter where we found pottery that dates back between 2,000 and 2,500 years old. So it was a glacial cliff shelter for Native Americans. In uh, the pottery, uh, we could date it by stylistic dating. We didn't do any thermal luminescence dating when we found it in the 1950s. But uh, last week I was out there looking, 
and I was using uh, my dowsing rods actually, and I just asked to see, you know, show me the uh, fall line. And as I was walking along, I saw it for the first time ever. And I've been there since I was a kid back in the 50s and never noticed it. The entire sheer the cliff is actually split right down the middle. And I took some pictures, and I believe I sent a couple of them to you, Mark, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And uh, and what I'd like to do is run ground penetration radar over there too. And it's about the cliff area is about 800 feet from the main site. Quite interesting to see if that fault line is the one that I detected using the rods. But along that line is our east-west equinox alignment, and there's a small chamber on that. There's a very, very small con that I detected using the rods right on that line. And then we have a couple of monoliths that are aligned, and one of them is called the birdstone. It's a it's actually a back site for the winter solstice sunrise and also a November 1st back site uh, for the November 1st quash quarter day. And that is actually part of a serpentine wall and it runs right along that fault. So um, I think ground penetration radar and when Maria visits us this fall, it'd be interesting to see what she detects on it, you know, but that's my initial, you know, um, basically my answer and my experience with that. Okay. <clears throat> Oh, oh, Maria, did did you want to add to? Well, it's uh, like I say, I think the 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 fault lines were used for mainly for the the effect of the electrical effect of it. But there's also, which Paul Devereux has pointed out in numerous of his books on Earth mysteries, that when you have fault lines, you have Earth lights or bolts, as they're often called uh, these okay. days, uh, balls of light, and they have been seen around lots of megalithic sites so for, for the listeners imagine a ball of light coming out of the ground or out of the side of silbury hill has been seen and they they look very mystical and i actually caught one on camera once because i had a you know a kind of intuition that i was going to see a big ball of light or earth light as i like uh, to call them by their older name and I literally snapped it and got it in the corner of the photograph. When it was put through Photoshop, you could lighten the whole of that photograph and everything would lighten up as one would expect. But except that earth light, which was very large and amber, you could darken the entire photograph and that would stay constant. And they have always been associated with uh, with fault lines. And uh, quite a few people believe that they can have consciousness. They're like sentient, and you can ask them to move to the left, and they're moved to the left. I have witnessed that as well. So it, it creates and adds to a very dynamic... Uh, a very dynamic uh, megalithic site if you have these this uh, activity constantly occurring around you. Um, it, yeah, that that was uh, some of the information you know we covered last week. It, it, it's really an interesting phenomenon and. When you know people, what maybe six, seven thousand years ago, were traipsing around the the landscape, how did they figure out? Yeah, this. Is these uh, uh, 
earth energies are affecting me and you know we, you know, we need to build something here to uh, maybe commemorate well, a, I, an experience I, I, yeah. I feel strongly that the earth energies were not necessarily doused uh, by the ancients because I've taken blind people out to megalithic sites and they have a completely different experience. Their senses uh, come alive and you have a different interpretation, for example. So I think the ancients could sense very deep water that's independent of rainfall born within, you know, um, the, the earth. So this is independent primary yin water. Water, uh, that uh, generates a huge spiral pattern called a geospiral and competent dowsers into geodetic energies can easily locate that pattern and it's very much influenced by the lunar phases and so it will change its directional flow at particular times of um, the lunar cycle and I think this is what the ancients were we're picking up and and feel it and we've also done tests on the physical body if uh, you touch a megalith at a certain point what happens to to your body and things like that and it all adds up to changing your the way that you think the way that you feel and the way that you are experiencing the site and i think that is uh, inborn sensitivity of the ancient ancestors who as as you know i discovered some of the elongated skulled people and i think their perception of the world is probably somewhat different to ours okay so that takes us back to a stonehenge could have been seen as uh, basically a hospital. Yes, I think, you see, in the 12th century, you had a chronicler who wrote the history of the kings of uh, England, uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth, very famous. And he said in that text, there is no stone at uh, Stonehenge that is not healing. And for, from the 12th century onwards, it was considered a healing environment. I don't know if, uh, you know, Dennis has any of experiences like that at America's Stonehenge would be interesting to hear. Well, we do have, uh, you know, people that come all the time here and they say the place feels like a healing place. They have that, that sense about the place. They feel a certain feeling about it and kind of a cleansing, healing kind of feeling. So I do hear that those comments, you know, uh, from our visitors. And if I, I, I think Maria has successfully argued that point about the, the healing potential. Uh, she's uh, demonstrated it in. Her writings, and you also hear about the archaeo acoustics in uh, the, uh, the Stonehenge environment. Um, it, it, it's just really uh, fascinating information about what today's science is helping us to rediscover about. You know how, how accurate uh, the ancient people were w- with their uh, 
uh, he- healing uh, techniques? Well, yes. I mean, it's the Stonehenge environs, as archaeologists point out, such as Professor, um, the late Professor Jeffrey Wainwright and Timothy Darville. They are also saying that Stonehenge was the Lord's, the you know, the healing centre of the ancient world. And you only have to look to the uh, round barrows that surround Stonehenge, and you do have signs of the body uh, self-healing. And you had people coming from all over the ancient world, from Egypt, because we have beads from Egypt, uh, from the Baltic, we have amber from Estonia. So I think it was like a megalithic capital. In probably, you know, like a real big capital, I, I would envision that would be the very similar for America Stonehenge. Maybe people were congregating there at particular times uh, of the year would be uh, interesting to explore. Okay, and if our listeners are enjoying th- this type of information um, and you know, they're interested in pursuing, you know, learning how to uh, douse, um, both of you will be at a conference in Santa Cruz, California in early July. Um you want might as well uh, talk talk about that conference. It's the um the, the website is dowserswestcoast dot org and what is the purpose of this conference? Well, Dennis has already been there, haven't you, Dennis? Uh, no, actually, I haven't. It'll be my first time to this particular conference, oh. so you probably have a better idea. I'm going to just do my uh, PowerPoint presentation, and I'll include you know, information about the dowsing that's gone on here for a couple of decades, but it'll be about an hour and 15 minutes, because Maria is going to be the keynote speaker of this, so she probably has a better idea of how the whole thing's going to go down. It's a five-day conference, though. <clears throat> It does seem very exciting, and it, obviously the, the main focus is dowsing. And what I'm going to be contributing to the uh, conference is talking about specific <coughs> types of earth energies and earth voltages and what's called the geodetic system of earth energy, which I've been working on because I inherited, I inherited rather all of the unpublished surveys and manuscripts of numerous sacred sites worldwide from the master dowser uh, Guy Underwood. And he got some things right. He was a pioneer and he got some things wrong. And I've been studying that system for about 25 years now, around uh, about half of, uh, half of my life. And I'll be, you know, uh, teaching that in a workshop as well and experiencing Dennis's uh, conference. I'm very much looking forward to that. You know, I really uh, hope to be at America Stonehenge in the autumn. That's the fall mark. And... <laughs> and uh, to uh, to give a dowsing workshop there, and hopefully to meet Dennis there on his uh, on his own stomping ground, and um, thoroughly understand the site and learn a lot from Dennis. Yeah, and Dennis, while you're in Santa Cruz, you're planning on going to the uh, Berkeley Walls, and then you have another trip. Uh, to Mount Mountville, Alabama, 
you want to do later uh, th- this month to look at uh, some of the serpentine walls in, in that area. Um, can, can you explain some of the serpentine walls at America's Stonehenge and th- this pattern that you're studying now in Alabama and the Berkeley Walls. What are you, are you seeing some kind of uh, cross-country pattern of walls? Yeah, Mike. Um, you can hear me okay. Yep. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the serpentine walls are something uh, new to us actually in the last four years. And so far, we discovered um, about 14 of them. And a serpent wall can be a stone wall that runs anywhere from about 30 feet, roughly, up to, including uh, the longest one we think we found here is 2,550 feet in length. And a serpent wall has a head, a body, and then a tail. And they can be straight, you know, linear. They can be rectilinear. And they also can be curved. And they can undulate vertically and horizontally. And some of them even have like scales on them, like a, like the serpent shedding its skin. In other cases, like the middle of the body will be fat, like it ate its prey. Um, we have a couple here of the four, uh, 13 we found that look like it's biting its tail, kind of like the Ouroboros, which can be uh, a symbol, I guess, of e- uh, uh, eternity, I guess, is one of the, one of the uh, symbolisms, they say. And uh, like the Great Serpent Mound in Ohio, it's possible that these uh, serpent walls might represent the constellation of Draco. And 4,000 years ago, and going back a little bit earlier, one of the stars in Draco was actually the pole star, and its star was Thuban, or Alpha Draconis. And we actually have a true north-south alignment on our site. It's one of the first things that we surveyed back in the 1970s when the astronomical research began. And at that time, about 4,000 years ago, that star Thuban would have been the fixed star, the pole star. And I believe in Egypt, that was considered like the gateway to heaven. It was the only star that didn't move in the sky at that time. And everything else is circumpolar. So Draco might be something like as above, so below. You know, you're looking at the heavens, you bring it down, and you create these uh, stone constructions that represent, you know, the serpent. And all over, it's kind of a worldwide thing. But uh, the Great Serpent Mount on Ohio is about 1,350 feet long. It's aligned with the solstices and equinoxes. And um, I know you've been out to it. It's pretty amazing. I haven't been. I've been to Ohio so many times, and I never had a chance to or uh, opportunity to visit it. But I think there's 94 of those earthen serpents, and there's even one in Scotland. Um, but okay. uh, stone wall-wise, mm-hmm. uh, New England has hundreds of these. In that town in North Stonington, I mentioned the earthquake fault line goes down into that site. They have about 400 serpentine walls, and the ones there vary from 30 feet up to about 300 feet in length. And some are just magnificent. Sometimes the head is a glacial boulder. It looks like a head. Sometimes it's a stacked head of stone. Um, so they can vary a little bit. It might have been generational. Um, but no farmer or just landowner is going to go out and build, build these walls that look like serpents, you know. Usually in New England, the last 300 years, they began building stone walls. They were for practical purposes. They're field clearings, boundaries, and stock fences, sometimes all three. And New England does have the 
most stone walls of anywhere on the earth. I thought Ireland did when I visited Ireland, but we have about 240,000 miles worth of stone walls, enough to go from here to the moon and another 10,000 miles almost. But these are historic walls. But what we think we have are some very, very ancient walls. And Sony spent a lot of time building these, you know, and they just don't serve a purpose for a farm whatsoever. So uh, it's rather. So we have four. Uh, we have 13 of them now, and uh, they go all the way across the country. I saw a picture of one in Indiana at the um, Mound State Park. It goes across the White River. Picture was taken 100 years ago, and it looks just like one of our curved serpents in length and size and everything. I don't know if it exists anymore, but it's right in the middle of a river, and it's so beautiful. But uh, Indiana has something like 5,000 mounds originally, because Ohio had about 10,000 mounds, and against some of these are effigy, effigy mounds, like the Great Serpent Mound. Recently, we found in Alabama, there's a 40-square-mile area that has standing stones or monoliths, Cairns. Some of these are quite large. They're almost like gigantic piles of rock. And also what they call rattlesnake walls. And um, we're finding them going out to Colorado. And one of them looks exactly like one of ours at our site, one of the ones in Colorado. And there are some other features in Colorado like monoliths and uh, cairns. And cairns are little chambers inside of them, little structures inside of these piles of rock called a chambered cairn. And we have those in New England too, particularly in North Stonington. Um, but recently near Mount Shasta, I got 110 pictures just last week from one of our researchers from Connecticut, and it shows the wall patterns out there. There's uh, the Berkeley Wall, which is in the Oakland, Berkeley part of California, and actually runs into Santa Cruz where this meeting is. And that was only found in 2016 that this wall might start in Santa Cruz, go through Oakland and Berkeley, and all the way up to the Canadian border. Uh, one of my friends that's been there has seen part of that. But out near Mount Shasta, they got chevron-shaped walls, and we have one here, serpentine-shaped walls. And there's other walls that connect boulders. So it goes from like a – up here would be a glacial boulder. I'm not sure about Mount Shasta, but a great big boulder. The wall will go to another boulder, and then it will zigzag to another boulder, and then zigzag to another boulder. You know, farmers aren't going to do that kind of work, connecting the boulders. But we have the same thing going on at our site. So when I get out to Santa Cruz, I'm hoping to see some of the Berkeley Wall and then make my way up to Mount Shasta. It's a couple hours, about four or five hour drive, and see some of these uh, incredible walls up there. And at the end of the month, we're hoping to get down to uh, Moundsville, Alabama, and then meet a gentleman from Jacksonville State University. He's been there 40 years. He's a doctor of uh, uh, anthropology, and he's found the same kind of features down there of cairns, standing stones, and serpentine walls that we have here. And he wants to take us around and show us some of those. So we're kind of excited about both uh, Santa Cruz and uh, hopefully we get to Alabama if uh, this corona thing doesn't slow things down a little bit. <laughs> you know, I don't want that uh, no. <laughs> happening. But, uh, you know, um, I've... Uh, uh, Question for Maria. Then you know, I I I think we can come back to what you were just talking about with uh, uh, what you're planning on seeing in Alabama. Um, and Maria's uh, a a very sun, moon, and earth energies uh, book. Um, she covers these shadow lines. Uh, and it's really uh, 
fascinating subject and um, with all the other times that Maria has been a guest with us, um, I don't think we've really gotten into it, but um, one of the um, points she brings up in her Avebury book is um, these uh, I want you what she call it um, like that obelisk that's right I mean at, at a place yeah. like Avebury uh, mm-hmm. Mark you have a massive stone circle of a hundred standing stones just inside of the, the henge, inside of which you have two smaller stone circles, but they're still very large, called the northern right. and the southern mm-hmm. circle. And Avebury and places like Stonehenge weren't built by one culture. They span a thousand years of activity and they're called a composite uh, monument because different cultures added to them. So it started off with just a few stone settings in what's called the Neolithic phase one of Avebury and around which about 500, 600 years later, the stone circle was placed. And uh, it was Professor Meaden that first noticed, but it had been written about in the 18th century, that the gigantic obelisk stone that stood at the center of the southern inner circle was like a sundial effect. And Mm -hmm. at the eight sacred dates of the ancient Celtic calendar, the shadow of that stone would fall on uh, one of the stones and at sunset as well, you know, like at Beltane, May the 1st and Samhain, uh, October the 31st, etc. But what I noticed as well is that it's, it's much more bigger than that. And one stone on the outer circle would put a shadow line to the stone on the inner stone circle, which would put a shadow line to the next stone. And eventually it would go from one end of the monument, which is a thousand feet, to the other end of the monument and climb the chalk white bank. So you'd have seen this massive dark shadow line cutting across the entire monument and then climbing like a serpent right up the bank would have been very uh, astonishing. And other sites had that as well. A much older stone circle than Avebury in the British Isles is Castle Rig in Cumbria, which has been archaeologically orthodox dated to around about 3200 BC. It's beautiful. It's surrounded by mountains. And it was noticed there that the tallest stone in the stone circle at the time of the uh, summer solstice sunset cast a shadow line two miles long on sloping ground and that's why a lot of these ancient stone circles are on sloping ground in my opinion is to exaggerate the shadow line upon which it has been noted that other sites were lined upon them like a lay so some of the shadow lines were used to align other sites upon in themselves and when we go to Newgrange in Ireland, what you see now today is quite a bad reconstruction. They don't think all of that quartz was on the frontispiece. They think it was on the top now. So, but, uh, but nonetheless, some of the stones that used to stand in front of Newgrange have long gone. And their placement has uh, suggested that, at, again, at the eightfold Wiccan uh, Druid year, that the shadows would fall on the enigmatic, uh, enigmatic 
curbstone rock carvings because Newgrange has immense rock carvings as many places in Ireland does and there was 97 surrounding Newgrange alone so I see ancient sites not just about the sun I mean we, when we think about alignments we think about the sunrise at the summer solstice or the sunset at the winter solstice it was about shadow lines as well and I'll come on to barrows I did a discovery in the uh, Avebury area about how barrows also uh, cast shadows as well, not just uh, standing stones. So the, I think uh, if Dennis looked into this in America's Stonehenge, you might find that uh, on those uh, eightfold years that there could be significant shadow lines. If they line up to another stone or aspect of the, the complex, that's significant. And obviously, if it's just a shadow that casts on the ground, it's insignificant. Yeah, and Maria, in, in your... Avebury, you you do mention that the the ground was elevated a a little bit to uh, extend the shadow, like you were you know just mentioning from uh, Castle Rig. And and that shadow extends like two miles. Uh, you know, so the uh, Neolithic people who were building Avebury over a thousand year period or more, um, you know, they they were doing some some of the uh, uh, terraforming to get these precise. Uh, shadow uh, markers for you know, basically a huge sundial. Uh, I, I thought that was uh, very interesting. And uh, Dennis went in Dr. Greg Little's uh, book. He he has uh, uh, in. Dr. Little's book, Native American Mounds in Alabama, he, he does have photos of um, these monoliths that um, I don't know, could serve the same purpose as uh, you know, the, the obelisk that creates uh, the sundial effect uh It'd be interesting to hear your observations once you get down there. But this shadow lines is just a really fascinating subject. Have you seen anything like that at America's Stonehenge? Well, um, I just became familiar with that uh, talking to you and Maria a little bit earlier this week. It's kind of something we thought about, like a sundial kind of thing uh, with a shadow effect, but um, but not exactly what Maria was saying. It sounds very, very interesting. It's something that might open our eyes up for sure. But we did have a 14-foot monolith that was found back in 1998 by one of our friends. We were out looking at a quarry site where some of the large slabs were actually quarried from the bedrock 
and the stone was propped up and, you know, and then it was shaped, being shaped like a large arrowhead using uh, the napping technique of percussion flaking. And one of our friends looked over and saw the stone there, you know, it's uh, laying down today, it's fallen and it has the same shape as the top of our summer solstice sunrise model. It's kind of an asymmetrical uh, slope top. Uh, and you did a whole article, I think, Mark, an ancient American magazine all about notches and, uh, uh-huh. and you talked about that. Uh, it's really a beautiful stone. If that was standing up, it's very possible the shadow would, and it's on just about at the pinnacle of the hill. It's almost close to the top of the hill. There would would certainly send a very long shadow, and there are some other standing stones in that vicinity, so it will be interesting to keep our eyes open to see if something that occurs, especially when we're starting to thin out the woods where actually the trees will be out of the way so that we could actually witness that probably. Um, and I am excited about Alabama. I'm supposed to meet up with a Dr. Holstein from Jacksonville State University. He's a doctor of anthropology, and he's really excited about all these different features of standing stones, the cairns, and the serpentine walls. And he's working closely with Dr. Little. So he wants to uh, meet us at the university. Hopefully, we can connect with him. And then he's going to take us to the see this area. It's 40 square miles. We'll see part of it. I guess it's kind of hard to find, too. So we hopefully we can meet up with him so he can show us the site because it's not on it's not on your normal uh you know uh places to visit the uh, mounds are those are beautiful in Moundsville Alabama but uh, this is down the road a little ways from that um i was going to ask uh, maria too uh with April, i've been there a few times and i you know the west Canada avenue is still i think pretty much intact i think mm-hmm. it goes it's to the sanctuary uh, is it the other side though of Avebury, there was a a similar uh, double-walled avenue, I believe, that's missing today. And if not mistaken, looking at uh, diagrams, if you were to look down at Avebury from above, the original layout would look kind of a serpentine shape. Do you? No, that's that's dismissed now. Oh, it has been. Okay, that's what I'm asking you. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm asking. William Stukeley, yeah, William Stukeley yep. drew the Serpent Temple out in the 1700s, and he revived Druidry. He was the one that said they wear the white cloaks, which they didn't because you didn't have you didn't have bleach then. You had very dark sheep back in the Druidic mm-hmm. period, and mm-hmm. he wanted mm-hmm. that to be to look like a serpent so much he oh. omitted two other avenue entrances which we now, and the, the archaeologists uh, suspect very strongly, were also mm-hmm. megalithic. So you have uh, four probably megalithic avenues flowing into Avebury Henge, not just the neat little one. William Stukeley fixed that uh, picture as well. He <laughs> made the sanctuary, which looks like oh. an Ovid, to be the serpent's face, the head, to, mm-hmm. And it's not, it's a perfect circle that had a, a timber stone hinge on the inside of it as well. It was magnificent. The, so mm. a lot of people say, yes, William Stukeley did record some very interesting things. And he named and shamed the stone smashing um, events uh, and named the farmers uh, during his time there. And he recorded the size of the obelisk stone. But certainly it was a diagram that is considered in archaeological terms to be incorrect but say something enough times and put it out onto the internet google brings it up and says it's a serpent temple so it must be but uh, i think most archaeologists dismiss that and incidentally a lot of the experiments done on the west kennett uh, stone avenue it's not intact 
that was completely reconstructed by uh, oh, Alexander wow. Keeler wow. in the 1930s, and they have metal bars in them to help them wow. stay up. So people that say there's magnetism coming out of that are hitting the unseen metal bars. If you need to do any tests at Avery, you must do them at stones that are in situ and have never been moved by ancient uh, modern man uh, and re-erected and set in concrete. And the same holds for Stonehenge. Well, thank you so much for that. Yeah, because I wasn't sure that that was accurate, you know, that, and it, uh, you really clarified that a lot more, you know. So, um, you know, I'm going to get back there. I'm going to have to take a look at that. And I know Stonehenge, a lot of those stones, we have a picture of cranes lifting up some of the uh, stones, you know. It was much more than I thought, you know. I, I don't know if I shared those with Mark. Did I share those pictures, Mark? Uh, I think Barbara shared some with mm. me. Mm. Uh, last year, I've I've seen something similar to what you're talking about, though. Yeah, I didn't realize the the extent the ex, you know the restoration nor on the West Kennedy Avenue too, because I've been by that a number of times, but I didn't realize that it had been you know the restoration had been quite as extensive. But thank you, Maria, for that update on. Uh, it's not really a serpent shape, and there may have been four avenues of stone mm -hmm. instead of just. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I like how I've done wow. field walking for Wessex wow. archaeology in that area. Yeah. And uh, the even the, the farm on the far side is called Avenue Farm. And there looks like, even if you're at Avery with a discerning eye, you see what Keeler put up as two concrete markers depicting a former position of a standing stone. And that is mm -hmm. the avenue. And another thing I, I discovered about Avery Henge, uh, many, many years ago, I used to do uh, water divining for Wessex water to find leaks. I mean, they've got better equipment for now. <laughs> they can test for different things. But uh, they allow me to use their very conservative um, well borehole depths. Now, there was more water in the British Isles in the Neolithic period. The rivers were wider and uh, etc. And using their depths in method and going to the original depths of Avebury Henge, which today it's, it's been infilled. It goes down three times deeper, and I've got a great archaeological reporter on that. Using those figures, I think Avery was a water temple, and the mm. moat at particular mm. times of the year was fill of, full, filled with water, and indeed Silbury Hill, the largest man-made mound in northwest Europe, which is only a mile or so from uh, Avery Henge was the moat was filled with water all year round according to the archaeologist Maud Cunnington and I know where Mark is near with Grave Creek Mound in West Virginia that likewise that had a moat didn't it Mark and was surrounded yep, by water making it yep. a water temple as the Osirin is in Egypt that's a water temple uh, as well mm. So I think uh -huh. there's a lot of new discoveries to be made um, if we look at Avery in places with fresh eyes. That's something. I know the bank and ditch or the, the multis you said, I, they used to be so much deeper that you could take a telephone pole and stick it in the bottom and the top of it would just barely reach the top of the, the bank, you know, and it's silted in, I guess, over the years, you know. So that sounds, yeah, with water around it, that would be pretty spectacular. Uh, it would have been because with the chalk white banks, it would have looked like milky mm. water. Uh, it would have yeah. been quite spectacular. But at places yeah. like yeah. Silbury Hill and maybe uh, Grave Mound, um, Mount, Grave Creek Mound, sorry, it's a, like a water mirror. 
So you can see the perfect reflection of Silbury that goes right to the edge of that water, making it a mirror. Wow. And Mark, the uh, Moundsville, West Virginia, that had the, as Maria is talking about the ditch, that's pretty much disappeared, right? You can't see it too good today. It's pretty silted in or there's been wiped yeah it's basically silted in um about 40 years ago <clears throat> there was a uh and i did uh some excavation and a uh a trench was uh dug across uh you know the base of the mound and yeah that's when they uh, realized that there was a moat around the uh, base. Uh, you, you also had one at uh, around the Crescent Mound that <clears throat> had oh. the uh, uh, giant as the primary burial. That's only like six miles down uh, mm-hmm. the road. Uh, it, you can see, you know, like the uh, ditch and bank uh, very clearly at the uh, Marietta's Conus Mound and it's in about two hours south in uh, Marietta, Ohio. So it, it it's a uh, uh, a ditch encircling a mound is it seems like it's uh, fairly common to the late Adina uh, uh, period. I don't. I don't. I, I'm sure it held water. Uh, people think that the uh, ditch or, uh, around the uh, octagon, uh, or you know the uh, oh the uh, big circle at uh, Newark. Uh, at Newark. Yeah. W- yeah, held water, uh, you know, year round as well. So, so if we're you look seeing at this. Pictures, yeah, I was gonna say if you look at the pictures of it, it looks like Avebury, you know, the same kind of ditch and bank. When you look at mm-hmm. the photographs of the Newark, it's amazing. There's a Miamisburg uh, mound that looks so much like your Grave Creek mound. Do you think that had a uh, ditch too? I I've seen photographs of it, but I didn't really pay attention to the. Uh, that could have also had a ditch where water was if it had it you know if that one had in ohio i i i i am not sure about that at the they look moment like twi- they look like twins you know except i'm not uh, mm-hmm. familiar with the ditch on that but the newark ohio you know the geometrical mounds but that ditch i think i was looking at pictures of Avebury. matter of fact isn't there some correlation in the um the diameter of that the size of that compared uh, to Avebury? I think they're quite close to being tw- by 27 uh, acres all in all. But I think Avebury does stand out in a very different manner. The Henge construction mm. is different, uh, mm. for sure, when you mm. look at Newark to, to Avebury, because Avebury was actually mm. made of chalk block. Uh, yeah. And mm-hmm. it was, you know, very uh, about a mile, mile and a half. But something I think may interest you, Dennis, which is what I discovered uh, in the Avebury environs, that may have a relationship with America's Stonehenge, uh, hmm. which uh, I could explore uh, with you. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's a, a, mon- a monument near Avebury, which predates Avebury by a thousand years. 
It's called Windmill Hill Causeway Enclosure. And it was a, a settlement site and it was a ceremonial site as well. And it's a, called a causeway enclosure because it has a ditch and a bank, a break, a gap, a causeway, a ditch and a bank, a break and a gap. And it goes on and on like that. So it's not one continuous henge like at Avebury and Newark. The older mm-hmm. designs had causeway breakages in them. And I noticed that at sunrise on the eightfold year, each one of those gaps, the, the sun would rise in between that cast in a, a this time not a shadow line but a huge long ray of light heading towards hmm. the center of the monument so there's light shafts as well and they seem in my opinion to activate the ley lines that are aligned upon them so if you've got a line a solar line uh, aligned to Beltane, it, it seems to increase in terms of uh, dousable energy at that time. Now, after that had been abandoned by the long-skulled people and the Bronze Age beaker culture came in around about 2500 BC, they built mounds on them. These large, uh, some of them were for burial, not all of them were, were burial mounds. It's not that simple. But what I noticed there, and this is what I think may be going on at America's Stonehenge, is at the winter solstice sunset, for example, there's two barrows that are, are parted by around um, 50 meters. I don't know that in feet, Mark. Sorry. <laughs> 160 or 70 feet. <laughs> yeah, over 150 feet. Yeah, 160, yeah. 70 feet. Yeah. Yeah. So they're separated by uh, a distance, and when the sun sets, it it sets perfectly uh, in the middle of one mound. But at the same time, the shadow of the burial mound heads towards that next burial mound and engulfs it perfectly in its shape around it as if uniting its shadow with that. And at the opposite, it's on an axis line, that's the midwinter sunset. And at midsummer sunrise, I photographed the shadow growing, this time at dawn, way towards the, uh, the other barrow. So at those times of the year, the shadow lines uh, of the mounds engulf one another and that must have had some kind of deep meaning to our ancient ancestors so mm. i see standing stones creating shadow lines but also mounds wow and, and that's, Maria, that's you, amazing you, wow yeah and in chapter three of your avebury book you have all the photos of the sun rising and setting at different spots at Windmill Hill and it looks like the sun is uh, coming up out of the mound or going into it. Uh, Your photo, uh, the sun's setting uh, through one of the uh, gates. you know, your photos just make a convincing case. Okay, here's everything lines up um, as it did uh, five, six thousand years ago. 
yeah, all of that was uh, was taken into consideration. I mean, for all of my uh, discoveries that I did astronomical at Avebury, and now I'm I'm hitting on Stonehenge because I don't think it was just the calendar stone Stonehenge. I mean, when I don't think the sundial at Avebury had necessarily you didn't need a, a stone circle to figure out where the sun was. Even in the medieval period of ancient Britain, all you needed was a stone with a stick in it, or what's called a cog almanac. Uh, to calculate where the sun was at a particular time. I think these were more than just calendrical. They were energetically, uh, you know, hugely mm. activated at these times uh, of the year. I get the feeling at our site the same thing. I think it's about the energy and everything. That's I felt that for years, too, not just watching the sunrise and set on a certain day, but that you know, it was a special time of energy, possibly. And I've heard people mention that to us, too, over the years. Exactly. You also have the shear force I was talking at, bathing the megaliths mm. uh, in mm-hmm. uh, piezoelectrical mm-hmm. effects. You have the energy yep. bands that I have proved that become activated around about uh, 18 uh, hertz, for example. And we've even done recordings at the Barrows now to see the kind of frequencies being emitted wow. by those in Stonehenge environs to try and get the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is at these particular times of the year, because of the sun mm. and the earth, uh, a relationship on the ecliptic belt, it does seem to highly energize the earth's natural voltages and earth currents. And we've recorded those as well. So they are active at that time. But mm. other researchers that are looking into AFE, we have come out with equally as fascinating things and saying that ultrasound becomes more uh, paramount round about the time of Beltane. And you mentioned mm. earlier, Mark, that that St. Michael ley line, that used to align to the Beltane sunrise and the Samhain sunset. And that uh, it's all about Beltane, and here we have huge amounts of uh, infra, infrasound being, uh, ultrasound, sorry, being uh, recorded at that that time and that time alone. And, and Maria, with you know the information that you just presented, you know. When you get to Dennis's uh, property, and I was just wondering if it's possible to reconstruct where, you know, say the 14-foot monolith uh, was set in in place, uh, where. Maybe some of the other uh, huge slabs could have been headed had not work uh, suddenly come to a stop and needed taken to consideration um, direction of you know the Victorian uh, quarrymen, uh, but you know maybe. You know, there's you know, some of the information that you've been discussing, like the you know causeways, uh, you know, the sundial, you know, obelisk of uh, stone in the uh, southern uh, stone circle inside Avebury. 
maybe there is a yet to be discovered uh, pattern at America Stonehenge. Well, the ultrasound, yeah, the the shadow line in the ultras, that sounds really interesting. I mean, that's something that hasn't been done here before. I don't know if Maria can do that. She'll have time to do that. I mean, hopefully, because I don't think that's been looked at. Yeah, we've done lots of tests, uh, Dennis, at places like Rollright. We've Mm. we've got Mm -hmm. some... uh, good equipment. Well, you, you can't use those really cheap things from the internet with the, the electromagnetic testers. They're, they're just uh, ridiculous. You have to use you know, mm-hmm. some really good equipment. And uh, mm-hmm. the retired mm-hmm. engineer that supports my work, his equipment is worth around £10,000. It's wow. the state of the art stuff because wow. people, you know, I meet at Avebury, they say, oh, look, this is coming up as a signal, but that's a man-made signal. They don't know the difference yeah. between a natural signal and a man-made signal. So you have hmm. to take all of the junk out. And what I'm really proud of at Avery Henge, and do you know what? I'd never get away with it now <laughs> because I did this quite some time ago, being a little uh, occasionally a foxy lady. With my, with my team, uh, we got some huge copper probes, and we put them in a control area to see if we could prove the frequency of an earth current that entwines a ley line. That was uh, the plan. And I thought I was being really clever, and I said, right, we're going to go to the obelisk zone, (laughs) which we've just mentioned, because the two Earth currents co-joined there in like an alchemic marriage. The male and the female stride their way through Avebury Henge very gracefully in in a wonderful ballet that they do around the area. So I thought it would be a good idea to put the copper probes there. Well, it blew them up three times. (laughs) Uh, It just was not recording. So I thought, well, we go to what's called the Mary, the female, the yin current, and place the copper probes uh, down in there and a control each side. It was quite scientifically done. And we got three huge bands of frequency going through the uh, Mary Earth current. And on the control each side, we didn't get any. And we feel hmm. that the, the ancients, you know, were uh, using these earth energies to uh, plan how you entered a monument. So, for example, hmm. at Avery Henge, you go in on, uh, on a current that is uh, being entwined on a lay. And this is what I'm doing on a survey for you, Dennis. I'm getting the kind of uh, tentative plan so that when I go there, I can say this is this and hopefully uh, contribute something to, uh, well, to America's Stonehenge. Well, we're excited and looking forward to that because some of this has never been done here. So that'd be excellent. Mm. It's all good stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're excited about it. Yeah. Uh, Maureen, you will be in the States uh, next month, right? And you're going to be presenting at a conference in Sedona as well. Uh, can can you yeah. tell the listeners a little bit about that conference and what is you know, the focus of your presentation? Yeah, the the focus of my presentation there will be looking at the similarity between some of the megalithic placements at 
stone circles in in Europe and uh, the UK to not just you know like the vortexes of uh, Sedona, but the other monuments within that area like Tuzigoot and why some of the the Tuzigoot walls are look offset and I've kind of decoded some of that as well and I'll be looking very much into the 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 ley lines that that link into these monuments and like i said earlier the the currents that are associated with them but the long lost way of how you would relate yourself to a monument because if we look at the the earth energies we can find out how we can maybe move around uh, an ancient site anyway you can feel what makes you feel nice at a site anyway so but i think our our ancient ancestors were quite structured then Andy Collins is going to be there too, and Andy um, has been looking into coordinates around the the globe, actually, uh, from the Rendlesham UFO forest uh, incident. And I think we're going to go to a coordinate point uh, there, there in Sedona, so that'd be quite exciting. And I'll be doing some dowsing demonstrations and uh, dowsing as well, all being well. England has gone a little bit odd in the past couple of days with uh, with the coronavirus. In my hometown, you can't buy anything with cash at the moment. You have to have a card. You can't touch anyone. Wow. Uh, mm. It's um... You know, uh, pre- pretty extreme. Uh, but what about uh, going to the pub? <laughs> that yeah. will never stop a Brit mark. Yeah, no. uh, <laughs> you know, just wondering how, uh, how they hand uh, a uh, pint of Guinness to you. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, with a credit card good. only. That, that will never stop. <laughs> <laughs> no cash. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> we just but had the we just had our county mark uh, the first um, person that's been identified with corona in our county of uh, Rockingham, which is a couple towns around us. So it's starting to hit here closer to home too. Wow. But we can still use cash. We can still use cash at the moment. So that could change. <laughs> but, but you know, ho- hopefully, uh, you know, this virus will stop and you know, we can get back to. Uh, uh, normal, but uh, uh, Maria, you, you know, you were in Sedona and you know, the desert southwest uh, last year. Uh, uh, you, you know, I, I've never been there. What you know? What are your Im- impressions of? Um, you know. It, Arizona, Southern California. Um, you know, what did did you do dowsing last year? What are what have you been learning about that region of America? What I've been learning about that part of America is that the the sensitivity towards the the earth. The, the turning of the seasons, how they constructed some of their sites, like I've mentioned, Tuzigoot and Wupaki, which is uh, further on up the road, heading towards Flagstaff, and where they place their kivas, especially the, the, the kiva mm. there, is very much um, similar to the spiral pattern, the geospiral pattern of the deep underground water that you get within, say, the southern inner circle at Stonehenge. 
And but what is Hmm. different and very similar, and this is where you know more research is done. This is very very uh, tentative. But some of the Templar designs that you get in churches and some very old uh, farmsteads, for example, again are very similar to some of the designs that are going into places like Charco Canyon and how certain walls uh, are being built. I noticed that as well, which is around, you know, our, our timeline uh, here, you know, about the 12th, uh, the 12th uh, century. And the, the timeline is, uh, is similar there. And I was at a mm. conference in mm. Arkansas in November where there was a, a very uh, well-read archaeologist, Scott. He did uh, America Unearthed, I think, or was it Unearthed uh, America? Oh, Scott Walters, America Scott Unearthed. Scott Walters, America yeah. Unearthed. And I was listening to him uh, talking about the Templars in America during that time. And so I'm starting to think, I wonder if there is kind of a design canon overlap or influence, all that was happening within the kind of consciousness of the planet at that time. So there's lots that I'm exploring there and uh, and discovering and possibly even rediscovering. Yeah, Scott was just out here at our place uh, just two days before the solstice, uh, just a couple of months ago. And he was doing a lecture too that we attended. So yeah, that's very fascinating. Hey, Maria, have you been to or know about the Blythe geoglyphs in California on the Colorado River? No, I've been to some of the petroglyphs around uh, Sedona and the Valley of Fire. They're the only ones I've been to. Oh, in California, the ones out there, there's about two or three hundred of them there. Because they lay across the land, uh, they look very, very similar to the uh, NASCAR lines in Peru. The same kind of, in fact, when you're looking at them, you think you're looking at the ones in Peru. So I was wondering if anybody's been out there to do any investigation with dowsing and energy. and the, But they cover a huge area just south of the Mojave Desert. And not too many Americans know about them. I talk about them on the radio and everybody's like, and then they Google it, and it's like, oh, my God, these look like the ones in South America, you know. It's a shame in our country they don't teach all of this, you know, in schools. But um, that might be something that might be really interesting, to, you know, to Dow's, you know. Yeah, because we we have <clears throat> over here hill figures. They're not necessarily on the ground. They they tend to be on hills. So we've got the, what's called the Affington White Horse, the Cern Giant. Uh, the long man of Wilmington, and they have, again, particular stylized ways of incorporating energy into their figures. So whether that is occurring in California or the Nazca lines would be indeed very interesting to compare the two. And I, like I said earlier, I inherited all the unpublished manuscripts of two master dowsers actually and they they've decoded all of those and i've i went blind i don't always look at them because the downside of dowson is say something uh, as an auto suggestion and someone can find <laughs> it it has that you know side to it as well but if you go blind into something and it kind of matches up with what other people have found bingo mm. You're, you're really onto something. So uh, I'm always open-minded. Uh, we'll have to do that one time, Dennis. We should go together. I'd love to see them. I've been out in that area, and when I was out there, I heard nothing about them, you know. Uh, I think they came out in one of the sacred psych books, and that's where I first saw it, probably in the late 90s or mid-90s. I'm like, 
you know, and when we do radio shows, we talk about it. And I talk to school groups that come here and teachers and chaperones. And I mentioned some of that. And they're like, those things are in the United States. I said, yeah. And we had up to a million mounds at one time. And they're like, mounds? You know, that it's really sad, you know. None of this is being discussed in schools or school books. But uh, the Uppington horse, I have that in my cellar in a gigantic picture my wife took back in the 80s. And it's so beautiful. I think it's chalk, if I'm not mistaken, but it's really beautiful. That's right, Dennis. It's made of chalk. Uh, it gets rescoured or recut every seven years by locals oh. normally. And that's associated to a hill, a mound in the area, and it's associated hmm. to an Iron Age ceremonial centre on top of the hill. And way before all of that wow. era, a Neolithic long barrow called Wayland Smithy. I've heard of that. And I've been there, and I don't think we saw that at the time, but we did see the. You know, my wife took the picture, and it's beautiful. i got to get back to England and hopefully uh, catch up with you over there if we can sometime. Anytime, Dennis. You just uh, – <laughs> and could you – could you? yeah, definitely. And could you uh, message me that site in California? I'd, I'd really appreciate that to look into it, Dennis. So thanks for mentioning that. When we're off the radio, I'll send it to you pretty quickly. And, Thank uh, you. Maybe, Mike, 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 you go over there with us too and see uh, Avebury Hinge and Stonehenge and everything and uh, – but you've been over there, Mike. Right? You were in Ireland. You were in Scotland and Ireland, right? And I was in England too. Went to. Oh yeah, I've, I've been to Stonehenge yeah. and Avebury. Yeah, right. like, I forgot that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Thirty years go ago, back, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been you know, a while probably, for me. Two decades. Yeah. Well, probably probably walked by Maria and you know did, didn't know that you know thirty years later would be well colleagues. Yeah, you both have to come over here. I'll buy you a pint of Guinness. <laughs> with 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 credit card only. Maria, do you know if this – I know they were doing la- la- laser scan. <laughs> we're going to be doing that here soon, I think. But uh, they just – oh, they, uh, they just declared the, uh, the uh, coronavirus a pandemic. It just came up on my phone a minute ago, a worldwide pandemic. But um, they're using laser scanning at Stonehenge, which is something we want to do on our site to get a standard unit of measure, you know, to see if our site was based on something like the megalithic yard. But I understand at Stonehenge you're finding some more artwork in the stones themselves that you can't see with your naked eye. Have you been following any of that at all? Yeah, that's the, that's been found for for quite some uh, some time. Uh, because okay. mainly because some of the there was, for example, a figurine of a headless person at Stonehenge. But wow. because the the policy, yeah, and that's hardly ever talked about that one. But because the policy of English heritage is to allow all of that, you know, lichen to grow on the stones, it's covering some of the artwork up. And in particular Mm. light, especially on like stone number three on the outer face, then that has a lot of artwork uh, on it. But it it is very difficult to see at particular times of the of the uh, day you could you've got to be there in the right light to see it there was also a very mysterious rectangular shape that was carved into one of the trilothons uh 57 and 58 i think by my memory mm. 
And that's uh, always been interpreted as a shape of a goddess. Well, I've never seen a goddess in a rectangular shape myself. But uh, <laughs> other archaeologists like Burl and others say that's what the representation of it in Brittany. But if you look to some very, very old texts about uh, Stonehenge, one is quite intriguing. It talks about uh, some kind of metal plate but they don't know what it is they don't know if it's tin they don't know if it's metal they're not sure if it's bronze it's kind of they're questioning what it is these are learned gentlemen from the uh, late elizabethan period and the the kind of measurements that they're talking about would have fitted into that rectangular slot at stonehenge but unfortunately Hmm. it went missing in around the 1630s so we'll never Hmm. know but i think stonehenge may have had a lot of different features to it that has long Hmm. gone and in my next book that's what i'm doing i'm doing a whole new view of stonehenge that is archaeologically correct but it will change the way that you look at it. Wow. That's interesting. Maria, did you also hear that they think that the the heel stone and stone number 16 at Stonehenge may have already been there by natural causes, and they kind of align with the midsummer solstice sunrise, but number 16 stone and the heel stone were not brought down from Marlboro Downs, but were already there. I heard that. I heard that on Graham Hancock's book, and I don't know if that's being that's accepted. Michael or... Parker Pearson. That's Michael Parker Pearson. I mean, he doesn't just say that about the Heelstone, incidentally. He says mm-hmm. that is also about what's called the Cuckoo Stone, which is an outlier way beyond, quite close to what's called Durrington Walls and Woodhenge. He claims that's uh, yeah. natural as well. And Mike Parker oh. Pearson goes on to say it's not about the, the summer sunrise Par se, but there used uh-huh. to be these glacial ridges either side of uh, of the heelstone. So that that comes out of what's called UCL, a uh, University College uh, London. There are other archaeologists that are arguing against Michael Parker Pearson's theory on that, incidentally. But then okay. if you look to stone number sixty-two, which is far more exciting, uh, which is a oh. blue stone from Wales, came from a previous stone circle in Wales, which was first oh. mooted by an archaeologist that worked with Sir Richard Colt Hall going back to the uh, early, the 1900s. So the jury is out. I mean, oh. a lot of people disagree with that, despite whether who it's written by. I think there was a Megan Fox's show with you last year. I think they mentioned uh, something about that up in Wales. I think, if I recall the show. That's that that's right. It was, you know, looking at the different types of bluestone. I mean, the, you mm. you must remember as well that you're only seeing two varieties of bluestone there. There there are many different varieties that have have long gone, that would have made Stonehenge again look a little bit different. But Megan Fox was a, a very a very lovely lady. I mm-hmm. I enjoyed my time with her. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of a good show. I enjoyed that. Um, uh, very much. I, I understand the the Sarsen stones came down from Marlboro Downs. They may have actually been stood up near Avebury Henge at one point and then relocated the Stonehenge. So they might have sat up in the uh, Avebury area for a while, erected, and then they were repurposed at Stonehenge. I don't know if that's a popular theory or just somebody's theory or not. That was one person's theory called uh, Professor Richard Atkinson, who wrote about that in his 1960s book. 
that it was uh, reconstructed yeah. from Avery, but they don't look anything like that. So right, and also right, what, has right. more, what has been more recently found by UCL, right. and this is Parker Pearson again, is that they were probably half-dressed on a very large road going from the Marlborough Downs, not close to, quite close to where I live actually, all the oh. way to Stonehenge. They were previously dressed. And with a discerning eye, if you go to the Valley of the Stones, you can actually see where the stones came out of the ground. And they were looking for more column-shaped ones. Avery's are more um, uh, different-shaped stones. So I I don't think Professor Atkinson was actually accurate about that. And it's been mooted and repeated with no evidence whatsoever. It's just been mooted and mooted and mooted after Atkinson. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Dennis, since we've been reconstructing a lot of these megalithic sites, a similar theme would be to talk a little bit more about the forestry projects you have going on at, at America's Stonehenge, um, you're looking at widening the views uh, to incorporate um, the the alignments. You know, a better making for a better view. Uh, to the horizon, um, but you know, you're really not changing all that much be, uh, uh, of the you know, the the view, um, you know, from the last um, what maybe thousand years or so uh, the the original layout of the uh, you know chambers would have been on a barren uh, landscape uh, can you tell us a little bit about you know, the difference from when it was built to you know when the forest started growing and you know, what the foresters have been doing for the last, what, um, nearly six months on your property? Yeah, Mike, back in the uh, 90s, uh, our archaeologist who's still with us began a shovel test pit study, and she ran about 70 uh, test pits across the uh, 106 acres, kind of mapping the hilltop geological and archaeological information. And her husband was a doctor of geology at Tufts University for 30 years, so he was a great right-hand man for that. And uh, we still do some of the shovel test pits today. They're actually a 50-centimeter diameter hole. They go down to the hit, either bedrock or what we call preoccupational level, like glacial soil, where no other human activity supposedly took place below that. And um, we found a couple of horizons of forest fires, so that's great for dating those layers, you know, the stratigraphic uh, layers. We found a few fire pits, two man-made fire pits, and dated a couple of those. We found a wigwam site, and we found a workshop area where the material was rhyolite came out of just north of Boston, about 30 miles from here, and somebody was bringing it up to make stone tools. And um, 
So at the end of that, what she said was she believes about 4,000 years ago approximately the hilltop would have been 75% bare bedrock, 25% covered with soils with some vegetation. So they wouldn't have had a tree problem here at the time when they were out there setting up the astronomical alignments. And I believe it's Stonehenge from the uh, – I've been there a few times, and Maria probably knows more. But I think that at that time there was actually a forest problem for Stonehenge builders. There was a lot more forest, and it's pretty open today, just the opposite of what our hill would have looked like. No forest problem back then, today a forest problem. So we decided a number of years ago, we're talking to uh, different forestry people, and the University of New Hampshire Forest Extension Service came down and visited us, that the hilltop um, – uh, the forest up here is overgrown for one thing, and so it's on a, kind of a two things we're doing. We're going to take care of the health of the forest by thinning it and also open up all the avenues for the astronomical alignments, which actually that began in 1967. But we have never opened up the lunar major standstill alignments north and south, and we also have one equinox alignment that's not been opened fully. And so part of the project is to open up all the astronomical alignments uh, real well. And... Uh, also, the serpentine walls, you know, a lot of these you couldn't even see. You couldn't even see it was a shape of a serpent because the, the forest was so thick there. So we're going to make sure we open those up. And by removing trees close to any structures or any walls will help preserve those because when a tree falls on the structure, it damages it. Or when the tree uproots, the roots pull up the structures and cause damage. In North Stonington, Connecticut, we mentioned earlier, it covers the structures covered pretty much the whole town of 35,000 acres. But one of the areas that was on a conservation property about the same size as our property, they just did a forest management program there to, you know, remove trees, open up the alignments. And uh, they did such a nice job of protecting the structures that they actually had some of the people from that program actually speak at the New England Antiquities Research Association spring meeting last year and explain what they did, why they did it, and what the outcome was. So our project is only half done. Uh, we're very excited about it, and it looks really great so far. But when the ground got warm in February, they had to pull all the equipment out. And now they're just waiting for the ground to dry out so they don't sink into the ground and cause any damage to the ground. And I think probably by midsummer we'll have this open. One of the ones they did open up, though, is the watch house. And we believe we have an illumination effect. In the back wall of the watch house, there's a quartz stone in the back wall, and it really shows up. Uh, one of my friends from Texas was up last year, and she used her sunseeker on it. And I thought it was a winter solstice probably illumination effect. She said, no, it's spring and fall sunrise, and the stone should uh, light up about 9 o'clock in the morning on the spring and fall equinox. So uh, in, in about a week and a half, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be watching for it beforehand. But around 9 o'clock in the morning, according to her sunseeker, this, stone, this uh, stone should illuminate, kind of like in Newgrange where the light goes to the uh, shaft around 9 o'clock in the winter solstice sunrise, or even the Newport Tower has an egg that's illuminated through the window on the winter solstice. Mm -hmm. But this, was, this would be the uh, equinox, not the solstice, not the winter solstice. So uh, this is something that we're so excited about. We'll know within a few days, you know, that whether it actually works. It does work on the app. But does it, how does it in real life look, you know, with the illumination? Because uh, Maria's talking about the shadow thing, which I'm totally excited about. But in this case, it would be more of an illumination effect uh, where the sun's rays, you know, the sun might be the male god. The rays come in and fertilize the womb, you know, and uh, one of those symbolic kind of things. So I'm still learning about it myself, but I think we're going to have something in a few days that should be pretty 
uh, pretty interesting to see if it works. So that's part of the forest management thing we're doing. Okay. Um, Maria, one of the really interesting aspects of your Avesbury book is your study of some of these, uh, you know, the Druid's chair and found, uh, is that in the northern, you know, the northern circle? Um, uh, the, the, the Devil's Chair, as it's uh, traditionally called, is one of the southern portal stones, meaning the entrance to the southern uh, inner circle. It's in situ, it was huge, it weighs about 80 tons. And, uh, yeah, that's that's in that sector. You, you know, uh, uh, it, you know, is that an observation area for you know, a distinguished person to sit there and uh, make the proclamation that, okay, it's the summer solstice, you know, something like that. Is it, uh, what, what was the uh, purpose of this chair? Well, it's a, it's like a huge megalithic uh, throne. It's it's gigantic with a seating area within it, and there was numerous seating chairs in the megalithic world of ancient Britain, not just that one. I could list quite a few examples. But when I was doing a lot of research into Avebury Henge, uh, today, if you're sat in the devil's chair and everyone has their picture taken, it is like part of the tourist <laughs> thing that you do. I even do a selfie from time to time there. Come on, it's, it's a beautiful stone. And, uh, but you're, as you're looking out towards the West Kennet um, Stone Avenue, the hedge wow. bank appears to be in the way of any alignment, okay? But if you take it back to its original design canon and move the hinge back by about 30 or so feet, then you'd have a much wider causeway. And that's how it was in the ancient world. You're seeing a reconstruction gone wrong there. And take it back to its original design canon four and a half thousand years ago, sat in that chair. Uh, it was discovered uh, that the midwinter sunrise would have been seen clearly and beautifully so, and the midwinter sunset. And if you go to Wales, you find chairs with seats in as well. So it is. it was an amazing uh, discovery. I felt very much guided by the ancestors to uh, discover that there. It was, uh, it was a really wonderful moment because I realized when I had the coordinates checked, by uh, Greenwich Observatory, that that was, you know, uh, really correct, was, uh, was a wonderful moment because at that point, no one had discussed at Avebury, unlike Stonehenge, that there was uh, solar alignments there. And just to, to clarify something for uh, Dennis, there's been some recent reanalysis by Dr. Michael Allen in the area of tree coverage around Stonehenge and Avebury. Because you're mm -hmm. right, Dennis, everybody used to think that it was in a forest, and now they've done all of the tests. That theory has been blown out of the water by Dr. Michael. Wow. 
uh, Alan, because he's Hmm. saying that it was very much deforested at that time. It's just, again, say something enough times and uh, it becomes a truth. And I was attending his very well packed out lecture hall just if, uh, just about two months ago. It was in February, actually, last month rather, to to hear all the new facts coming out about this area. Oh, that is new. <laughs> Thank you for the update on that too. And I'm pretty sure it was more open. Do they think that the deforestation was man-made or some sort of natural uh, uh, something that of it took they place? Feel- yeah, a lot. A lot they feel, uh, Dennis, was uh, was being man-made by uh, late late Mesolithic, uh, mm-hmm. early Neolithic peoples, long, long before um, even Stonehenge Phase One had uh, been birthed. Wow! So they were consuming so the forest was, before that. Okay. It, were, were some of the logs uh, used to build Woodhenge, or is that much later? Yeah, yeah, Woodhenge is uh, is much later because okay. the and that they were kind of like some of them were oak based. Whereas when you look to the Mesolithic post holes at Stonehenge, dated to about you know seven thousand seven hundred BC, they were of pine. Hmm. Wow. And um. Maria, you, you just mentioned uh, you just got some coordinates from uh, the, the Greenwich Observatory. Uh, h- how do you work with them? Uh, well, I realized that it would be good to have some good clarification on some of the sunrises and moonrises that I was uh, was discovering just to get a clarification, uh, a bit of a backup, really. And uh, so what I did was I thought, well, I'm not going to go to an amateur astronomer. Why don't I just phone up Greenwich Observatory (laughs) and and ask them if they'd help me out? And he said he was called uh, Stephen Bell. I don't know if he's still there, but he said to me, I'm not doing much. It sounds quite a a nice little project. I'll I'll bring you back. So we, we didn't even do it over email. I just thought I'd talk to somebody. And the next minute I had some support. It was, uh, you know, sometimes you just got to ask. <laughs> okay. I, you know, it's just uh, um, such a d- distinguished um, institution. And I mm. just wonder, you know, how, how you get connected to it and just like call them up and. Yeah. Send them an email. It's, uh, you know they have the you know the old observatory that uh, was that the one uh, Sir Christopher Wren uh, designed, and then the the more modern one is uh, behind that. Is that how it's? I just, you know, I, I honestly don't know, Mark, but, but uh, what, what I do know, you mentioned Wren. If you do go to Stonehenge, uh, and I do meet you two for a pint of Guinness, then I'm going to show you some graffiti by Wren at Stonehenge. He carved his name into the side of a trilophon. Unbelievable, isn't I it? I did not know that. <laughs> I'll, I'll show you when, uh, when uh, you get there sometime. <laughs> I missed that. that my, was, uh, my phone went dead, Mark. <laughs> yeah, the the, the uh, 
you know, th- famous people uh, who who've been busted uh, making graffiti. <laughs> And I was yeah, I was not aware of that. Um Okay, um let's see. Oh it, you know, Maria, we have oh probably fourteen minutes or so uh left. Um you know, Dennis has been looking at some of the megalithic yards that may be associated with his property. Obviously, you're dealing with that on a regular basis. Um, you know, Dennis and I have also spoken about this was a um, – Um, standard unit of measurement from Central America as well. Or were coming to the same conclusions on you know, different continents at about the same time? Is there uh, enough evidence for? Um, you know, you know, transatlantic crossings and people <clears throat> exchanging their observations and <clears throat> exchanging ideas. Uh, you know, what do you think about that? And you know, uh, Doctor Child mentions the megalithic missionaries. Well, if you draw a straight line from near Stonehenge at a place called uh, Winterbourne Stoke which has a very prestigious long barrow and you draw a line right the way down to the south coast at a place called Christchurch on the coast it's been discovered that that was a very large Neolithic early Bronze Age harbour so that was a big exchange and as I pointed Mm. out to Wessex archaeologist Bob Clark that's exactly on one of the ley lines that I have been talking about for for many years so their their straight line which they said was fenced and paved in in part the parts that they've excavated they haven't excavated it all was a, a high point where we would be exchanging goods and ideas and you know, discussing things. And Alexander Tom obviously is very widely respected for his uh, work and contribution to ancient sites and the megalithic yard and the shapes of uh, stone circles. And some other ideas have challenged that. We have Aubrey Burl and Michael Parker Pearson that we've been mentioning, Mm -hmm. the archaeologists. They have looked into more localized units that are similar to the megalithic yard, but they could be called like the Stonehenge yard, the Cumbria yard. I mean, I actually think it's probably more like Alexander Tom, but I'm open-minded enough to have a, a look beyond what's already been said. Now, whether that is accurate, that you have the Cumbrian yard, as Bill claimed in his book on Stone, Stonehenge, I, 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 would, I would consider it. Okay. And, D- Dennis, what, 
where have you seen the uh, megalithic yard at America's Stonehenge? Well, when I made a uh, diorama back in 1976-77 of the uh, of the site, we went up and did a few measurements just to get the uh, mo- the model, you know, accurate. And I had a couple of friends with me, and we were already aware of uh, Dr. Tom's work in the megalithic yard. And either coincidentally or not, we found that the measurements seemed to uh, agree with the megalithic yard. We took measurement after measurement, about 32.64 inches. Um, and, you know, that was very interesting to us. But if you go back 80 years ago, uh, Dr., uh, when William Goodwin was the first researcher on the site, uh, he had a gentleman from MIT, an engineer named Roscoe Whitney. And when Roscoe was up there, they did uh, diagrams of the site, cross-sections, profiles, and plan views, very, very carefully done on a plane table. And he was very good at that, being an engineer. And one of his comments back then was, whoever built this site either didn't give a damn about linear measurements and knew nothing about them, because I've looked at the imperial measurements, like inches, feet, and yards, and this site does not conform to that. And in the 60s, we became aware of Dr. Tom's work, uh, just what Maria said, and actually got in contact with him in the 70s. And then my dad and I visited him back in 19, I believe it was 1982, three years before he passed away. And his, his son, Dr. Archibald Tom, and the rest of the family, and we had turkey with him. It turns out it was our Thanksgiving day, you know, and they didn't know that. So that was kind of cool. But um, <laughs> we have found out on the table, you know, the table's groove is actually a trapezoid shape. And we found this out just a couple of years ago when Dr. David Stewart Smith was still alive. He died in 2016. I had just retired from the airlines and I started finding these serpent walls and with other people too, and the windows. And then that megalithic yard uh, came up again, you know, and the groove is not rectangular, but the bottom of it's 1.2. Uh, I'm sorry, 1.5 megalithic yards across the top is 1.25. The length of the, rec- the trapezoid groove is 2. And then we measured the table, you know. And afterwards, I went back and looked at Tom's 1967, one of his uh, publications, and it says you can divide the megalithic yard by quarters, halves, three quarters, but never by thirds. And I said, geez, that's just what I found on the table. Um, we started looking and measuring the oracle chamber again and the different big slabs of stone that are monoliths. And my son's an engineer, too, and I had another gentleman who actually is a lance, uh, professional lance, uh, stonemason, and he went to University of Boulder and got a degree in that. He measures stuff for a living. And in a, a, time after time, and we, we do things just like a carpenter over and over again, measure it several times just to make sure. And it seems like the megalithic yard might be at our site. And you mentioned like Tiwatiwakan, they found 83 centimeters and down in Peru. And when you sent me that information from, I think it was Dr. Clark, I think, from BYU, I believe it was. He mentioned 83 right. centimeters. Is that the guy? Yeah, 83 centimeters. Mm-hmm. And also down at Poverty Point and Watson's Break down in Louisiana, those magnificent mound works down there. And I converted it into inches, and it's a megalithic yard. I don't think Dr. Clark um, associated that with that. So it's something that's ongoing. It's not conclusive yet. We should have laser scanning done on the site, but we are today, right now, we're doing LIDAR on it as we speak. The gentleman's up there with uh, my guy Pete and a couple other people actually doing the serpentine walls and the site with LIDAR. And um, he said it's down to two centimeters he can get. So we might be able to use some of that data to see if we have a standard unit of measure um, of the megalithic yard. So it's kind of exciting, you know? <clears throat> okay. And, hey, um, <clears throat> now we're approaching uh, only, you know, the last five minutes of uh, this show. Um, 
you know, I want to be able to give everyone plenty of time to uh, talk about their websites and, you know, you got the uh, summer solstice uh, celebration you have coming up at uh, America's Stonehenge in, in uh, uh, about 10 days. Uh, you know, Maria, do you, uh, do you want to plug the uh, Sedona website as well and anything else you want to cover? Well, yeah, I mean, the uh, uh, it's a lady called Suzanne Ross that's uh, organizing the uh, Sedona uh, conference, which uh, is widely uh, available on places like Instagram and my and, uh, and also the Santa Cruz West Coast uh, Dowsers in, in July. And I'll be in contact in the desert in June as well. Uh, details mm. can be found on my website, which are the AveryExperience.co.uk, and that's my tours and what I'm doing with people like Brian Forrester. I'll be going to Malta with him next year, and Egypt with him and Patricia Arwion next year. I'm really looking forward uh, to that. And my teaching platform is esotericcollege.com, where you could learn Dowson and other esoteric uh, ancient arts with me. And I've got some new courses coming out uh, in the near future to do with the, the Celtic uh, Oem and some other subjects as well. So that's my two websites. Thanks. Okay. And Dennis, uh, do you want to tell us about your website and anything else you have uh, coming up? Well, uh, I'm excited uh, to be out in Santa Cruz with Maria. I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope I can go to a couple other conferences with her sometimes, maybe over in the U.K., because it's uh, just amazing what she's doing. Uh, but our website is StonehengeUSA.com, and we have a you know, email there and a telephone number. And we also have a free app down, download under America Stone, and you can actually do a tour of our site. Um, and it has text pictures and it talks to you. We're on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Um, but uh, yeah, we got the uh, lecture coming up. I got one in Maine, and then I have one out in Santa Cruz with Maria, which we're really looking forward to. And then um, uh, get uh, Flagstaff possibly in the future. So, um, but um, when we do the LIDAR, and we might be using ground penetration radar here, too. we got some people interested in that. And thermal imaging, we'll put that information on our sites, too. But my uh, biggest thing I'm looking forward to is meeting Maria and having her here in the fall, too. So, But thank you so much. Thanks, okay. Dennis. Yeah. And, oh, and, uh, <laughs> my pleasure. Yeah, we're, we're down to about the last couple minutes. Uh, Barbara, do you want to step in and wrap up the show. Th thank you, Marie and Dennis for being a uh, terrific guest. Uh, Barbara, you. You, you, can, you can give the uh, benediction. <laughs> okay, just going to quiet you down so you don't decide to talk for another half hour. I um, want to thank everybody for being with us tonight, today. Um, this has been fascinating. I've learned a whole bunch, and I bet everybody else has too. Make sure to tune in to us next week for Monday and Tuesday shows. We look forward to being with you again, and if you like what you hear, please go to the YouTube channel and subscribe for us. We're, we're trolling in the numbers, and every, every number counts. Thanks so much. Have a great evening and day, slash, depending on what your continent you're on, 
and we will all get together again very time soon. Bye now.